dragons and beasts and harlots. Oh my. There's a book of the Bible which is very mystifying to many people. It contains much vivid imagery. Images of beasts with horns and crowns and creatures like locusts that have stingers like scorpions and faces like men and hair like women. It's a book of Revelation. It's mystifying to many, but I do want to do a a mini-series on this book to help us to see the big picture. Our plan is still to launch into the Gospel of John here in several weeks. We finished up with the book of Ephesians. But before we delve into the Gospel of John, I want to take several messages and look at the book of Revelation. Today we're going to do an overview, and we're going to examine some fundamental principles for interpreting the book. And I really want us to come away today saying, this book, the book of Revelation, is a gift of God to His people in every era. And that this book contains principles and pictures of Christ and glorious truths that are directly applicable to our lives today, not just to a future generation, but that we can learn from it today. And so we turn to this task this morning, and we consider this glorious book. Look at the very first chapter of the book of Revelation. And as you're turning there, my plan at this point, at this point, and it's subject to change, is to look, as I mentioned, at several messages. We're going to do this overview. I'm going to see how much time we take on this today. We may do another lesson on the overview. Then I hope, with the help of the Lord, to look at chapters 4 and 5, the great throne room there, and Christ, the Lamb, who is worthy to loose the seals. But then I also want to address a few of those passages that bring about a lot of questions in our minds. So we want to examine the mark of the beast and ask the question, what is the mark of the beast, for instance? And then we may add a few more messages to that. But first of all, then, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Circle that. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. Notice it's revelation, not revelations, plural. And it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. To show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Notice this. 
This is the one book which adds a specific blessing for those who read it. Do you want to be blessed by God? Then don't ignore this book. And I do greatly hope that by the end of our message today, that if you've looked at the book before and it was so confusing to you that you said, I can't really get anything from it, that that will have changed. I hope that if you've been afraid to read it, that fear will be gone. I pray that you will see that all of us, no matter what our level of understanding of the complexities of theological positions and historical backgrounds and all of these things, that we can all go to the book of Revelation as God's children. We can read it and we can glean from it and be blessed. So let's consider this today. Vern Poitras says this, Can you understand the book of Revelation? Yes, you can. You can summarize its message in one sentence. Here's that sentence. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. Poitras continues, read it with this main point in mind and you will understand. He says, you will not necessarily understand every detail, but it is not necessary to understand every detail in order to profit spiritually. And he goes on to point out the same is true of all of Scripture. All Scripture is profitable, is it not? 2 Timothy 3.16, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The book of Revelation is Scripture, and it is profitable. And just because it is filled with imagery, and just because there's been a wide range of opinions about the finer points of interpretation does not mean that we cannot understand it. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. So, there is a clarity to the book of Revelation. As you look at the very first chapter here, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word revelation means that which is unveiled, that which is revealed. God says at the very beginning here that this isn't something that is hidden, that is covered, but it is revealed. That means God intends it to be understood as he does the rest of Scripture. It says that this is to show his servants. Poitras says the word show, again, implies that it can bring its message home to the hearers. Revelation addresses itself to his servants, not just prophecy buffs, he says. Not PhDs, not experts, not angels, but you. But you. And blessed is the one who reads it. 
looking at the the big picture, the purpose of the book. It's important to remember that this book, the book of Revelation, like all of the books of the Bible, were written in a specific historical context and was delivered to a specific group of people in order that they would be instructed and understand. Sometimes the book of Revelation is approached from the perspective of this book is all about that which is future to us. And so we can kind of watch for the signs in history, watching the news, etc., etc., and get an idea maybe of whether or not it's close to the time for the church to be raptured out, etc., etc. But the prevailing view of the book of Revelation says that everything from chapter 4 on has no direct and specific application to us predominantly. That it's talking about what is going to happen to a group of elect Jews in the future to us. And that's the primary focus. What happens oftentimes is that the book of Revelation is studied from the perspective then of what's going to happen in the future and it's relegated to trying to then watch the news, figure out what's going on in the Middle East and then see how that all fits in with the book and I think oftentimes the main purpose and focus of the book is obscured and it's forgotten that this book... (coughs) was written to Christians almost 2,000 years ago, and it was directly applicable to them at that time, 2,000 years ago. And as the Word of God, it's directly applicable to us today as well. And I would propose that no matter what camp of eschatology one falls into, that the emphasis should be on Christ and His glory. The emphasis should be on the persecuted church, and how this book was written to strengthen and encourage believers who were facing persecution. That's the historical context. Are there any Christians facing persecution today? Are there any Christians that are suffering today? Are there any Christians involved in spiritual warfare today? This book is for all of us who face these things because there are broad principles which cover all of these things and give us hope. Bob Utley says, The purpose of Revelation is to show God's sovereignty in history and the promise of the culmination of all things in Him. The faithful are to remain in faith and hope amidst the persecution and aggression of this fallen world system. He continues, The focus of the book is the persecution, emperor worship in the eastern provinces initially, and faithfulness of believers in the first century and in every century. He continues, remember, prophets spoke of the future in an effort to reform the present. So even those things that are future in the book of Revelation, the prophets spoke of the future to reform the present. Revelation is not only about how it will end, but how it is going, he says. Now now notice this. Robert Sancy says this, 
This is crucial. This is crucial to biblical interpretation, whether it be Revelation or other passages. Listen to this carefully. The biblical prophets were not concerned primarily with the time and chronological arrangement of future events. For them, the spiritual state of their contemporaries was the point of importance and the great eschatological visitation of God for the judgment of unrighteousness and the blessing of the pious was interjected for its ethical impact in the present. I'm going to read that again. The biblical prophets were not concerned primarily with the time and chronological arrangement of future events. For them, the spiritual state of their contemporaries was the point of importance. And the great eschatological visitation of God for the judgment of unrighteousness and the blessing of the pious was interjected for its ethical impact in the present. In other words, those books which prophesy of the future were not given primarily so that we could chart things out and figure out what's going to happen in the future. But they were given primarily so that we, the people of God, would be impacted and we would be strengthened to glorify God for His sovereignty in creation. We would be encouraged to endure hardship as good soldiers of Christ and we would be challenged to live watchfully and wakefully, not drowning in sin, because Christ will come one day and judge this world. That's why it's written. (laughs) And no matter what eschatological camp we fall into, if we approach Revelation from the perspective of, I've got to figure out the chronology and how all this is going to unfold in time and space. We have missed the purpose of the book. It's not what it's about. Does it include future events and prophecies of future events? Yes, it does. But God's purpose wasn't so that we would get knowledge you know, uh, Pastor Steve at camp, kids, you may remember this, Pastor Steve said that we who are reformed in our theology, you know, somewhat Calvinistic, he said we're very cerebral. We're focused on the mind, right, and our thinking. We're very cerebral. And he said the reality is we oftentimes preach long messages to find out what the Bible means and then very little time applying it, he said, but the whole purpose of learning what it means is so that we can apply it. If we have fat heads and shriveled hearts, we have nothing. Knowledge puffs up. God wants our hearts. And he gave us the book of Revelation because he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants us, as we read in Revelation about these seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was given in time and space, real history, real context. He wants us to read these, such as in chapter 2, when it says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, 
These things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. He wants us to read this, and he wants us to ask, is this me? Have I been battling against false doctrine and, and wicked people and, and standing firm, but not doing it out of love for Christ? And he wants us to hear this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He wants us to read Statements like this and, and ask, is this me? And all of these churches, and remember, these were real churches in history to whom this was written. And this book was directly applicable to them. In the TEV notes, it says this, the revelation to John was written at a time when Christians were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ Jesus as Lord. The writer's main concern is to give his readers hope and encouragement and to urge them to remain faithful during times of suffering and persecution. Okay, so again, looking at the big picture, if we're looking at it from the perspective of God in Christ triumphing over evil and given to Christians who are facing hardship and persecution for their faith, then we can see in the segments of Revelation, even those that have much symbolism and imagery and are hard to pin down, we can see the big picture throughout it all. And we're going to look at that a little bit by way of example. But think about this, to each of these churches, these seven churches, a statement is made at the end, some of these churches are commended and then also rebuked, some are just commended and then are told be ready because you're going to face hardship or, or persecution, some of them are just rebuked and they're not commended at all. But in these, we see statements such as chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. It's a key statement over and over again. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. This book is given to encourage Christians facing temptations, trials, and hardships. That God is the victor over evil. Beasts and dragons and locusts and all of these things. God ultimately triumphs in Christ over the forces of evil. And those who are identified as God's children and who remain faithful to the Lord will overcome. Can you see how that would in any way be encouraging to an early church that was facing persecution? That when they professed faith in Jesus, if they were Jews, their families would disown them. 
their fathers would look at them and say, you are not my son. Get out of this house. To Christians who face persecution from the state, and if they did not burn incense to the emperor who was deified as God, that they would be cast out of the trade guilds so that they would have a hard time finding work, and some of them ultimately even were thrown into the Colosseum where they were torn apart by wild animals or many other horrific deaths. Do you see how this could in any way be encouraging to them? That Christ triumphs. Light wins over darkness. Beasts and dragons and locusts and all of these will be defeated. And the victory is secure in Christ. The statement to overcome. And to him who overcomes I will give to eat from the tree of life. Which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Notice the persecuted church of Smyrna. And it says there in verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested. You will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful to death. I will give you life. All of these promises. Eating of the tree of life. Being given the crown of life. Those are symbolic of everlasting eternal life with God. In blessing and favor with God. He who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. They will not be cast into the lake of fire. You see how encouraging that is. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And we get bogged down in all the details. Oh, I want to know what the stone is and what's that name and all of this. This is simply a picture again saying you will receive everlasting life. Jesus is the manna, is he not? We feast upon Him spiritually and we have everlasting life. But over and over again, these encouragements, overcome, 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 don't give in. It's given to encourage, not to scare. Sure, it ought to to scare the hell out of some people. And I'm not cursing you, understand? I'm speaking literally. If you're a compromising person, as is spoken of to the compromising church in Pergamos, or if you're corrupt as the corrupt church in Thyatira, this ought to scare the hellfire out of you and point you to Christ and true faith in Him and overcoming through Him. As we consider and continue to consider the, the big picture and some broad overarching themes and, and purposes of the book. William Hendrickson says this in regards to the theme. The theme is the victory of Christ and of his church over the dragon, Satan, and his helpers. The apocalypse, which is 
The Greek word behind the word we translate revelation, and it means unveiling or revealing. And the book of Revelation is sometimes called the apocalypse. He says it's meant to show us that things are not what they seem. They're not what they seem. Outwardly, we turn on the TV and we see the news and it looks like evil is rampant and God is out of control. But just read the book of Revelation and you will see over and over and over and over again, God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely in control. Who is it that looses the seals which bring about all kinds of natural disaster and persecution. It is the Lamb, Christ, who looses the seals. Who is it that gives the key to the abyss in chapter 9 to the star fallen from heaven so that he opens the abyss and unleashes these horrific-looking creatures so that they torment those who do not have the mark of God upon them. Who gives them the key? It's God. The book of Revelation shows us that things are not as they seem. That it is God and His sovereign hand that is ruling the universe and controlling events, even diabolical events. And that God is doing it for his good purpose. And ultimately, he's going to wrap it all up in the devil and all of his minions. And all those who bear his mark are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Where their smoke will ascend forever and ever. Their torment never ends. This book is written... To show God's people that God is in control of the persecution and suffering that you face. God wants it to happen to you. He wants it to happen to you. He has decreed a time it will happen and a time it will end. And he says... That it will not end until he has determined. There's a sense in which. Now you realize I'm not talking about us suffering because of our individual sins. But I'm talking about God wants to test his people. He knows that the testing of our faith produces endurance. He wants us to have opportunities to see if we are really His and going to be faithful to Him. The book of Revelation teaches that over and over again as we see these seals unloosed and hardships and trials coming upon the people of God, as we see the cry of the martyrs and saying, How long, O Lord, till you avenge us? And He says, Not until all who are going to die for the testimony and that number is completed, then I will avenge. 
I was doing the Bible study at the jail. And there's a man in jail who had grown very discouraged and then very belligerent in his discouragement. And as Robert and I are there, he's just launching into all of the injustices that he believes have been foisted upon him. And he's just going on and on and on. And in the initial conversation, I was trying to point him to Christ and the sufferings of Christ and saying, you can learn from what you're going through. And he even blasphemed by comparing his sufferings to the suffering of Christ at the level of Christ. And he didn't come into the study for about two weeks. Well, this last Tuesday, one of the dispatchers had broken the door of the day room, the doorknob off of the day room door where we usually meet, so we couldn't meet in there. He said, so we're going to meet in cell number eight. Each cell has four bunks in it. Well, it just so happens that cell number eight is where this guy was housed. He was held. And he said, I'm just going to lie here on my bunk. I'm not going to move. So, okay, well, I'm glad you're here. I asked for prayer requests, and the first thing that he did as soon as I said, let's have prayer requests at the beginning, he launched into all of the, again, injustices that he believed had been foisted upon him, and I wish that they'd quit lying about me, and you know, and just going on and on and on. And I'm stopping him, saying, hey, whoa, you know, you're asking me to be the judge and the jury, that's not why I'm here, I cannot do that, I cannot judge your case. I'm here to point you to the Lord and give you the scriptures. And so he quieted down. And there's another guy that's in there. And he tells me right away, as soon as we start, he says, hey, I, I just want to let you know I don't believe in God. I'm like, okay, thank you for your honesty. And then I start reasoning with him from the scriptures. And as we're going along then, and as I'm doing the study, I mention, and it's kind of geared towards this first man who had been so belligerent and complaining and everything else. I mentioned what, one thing that Pastor Steve had mentioned at camp children, and that is that many people abandon the faith because they think that God has promised something, and then they pray and pray and pray, but it's not a promise that God has given them. And he had been going on and on about how could God possibly be real, and how could he possibly love me because I've had this happen, and I've had that happen, and I've had the other. And I'm saying it's because God hasn't promised you that you wouldn't go through hardship. Now, I'm not affirming to this man all of the things that he thinks has happened to him. He's in jail for just cause, and he doesn't deny what he did. But at the time, I mentioned these promises, and I mentioned that God hasn't promised his children would go through no suffering or hardship, but the contrary, this guy who already told me he doesn't believe in God, and he tells me at one point he doesn't believe in hell, pipes up and he says, so God doesn't want any uncommitted followers. I'm like, amen, preach it. You know? <laughs> He's preaching my sermon to the guy over here. <laughs> and I followed up on that. Yeah. You know, and here's what he was picking up on. If God only ever gave us 
everything that we always wanted, and it's a bed of roses, smooth sailing, tiptoeing through the tulips, nothing ever goes wrong. How would we know that we really have any faith in Him? How would we know that we're really His? How would we know that we're not just in it for the goodies? But God says directly and specifically over and over again in Scripture that He brings hardship on His people to test them and see what is in them. He told His people Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I caused you to hunger in the wilderness to see how you would respond to Me. And the book of Revelation over and over again portrays God sovereignly in control of desperate and even diabolical circumstances so that His people will be put to the test and those who overcome then are promised lavish reward and everlasting peace and comfort. But we just have to wait a little while. Just wait. We want instant gratification, right? God, give it to me now. The book of Revelation is saying, you're not going to get it right now. But just wait. Just wait. It's coming. The cry of the martyrs. How long, O Lord, before you avenge us? God says, just wait. Just wait. It's coming. Look at, look at that passage for just a second. In uh, chapter 5. Excuse me, chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. The opening of the fifth seal. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. <laughs> now, if you're reading this and you're in the persecuted church, you're going to be saying one of a couple things as you apply this properly. One, you're going to say, you know what? God hasn't avenged all the martyrs yet, and so there are more of us that are going to die. But God has already told us to overcome, to overcome, to overcome, to overcome, to be faithful, and that He's sovereign, He's in control, and that He will avenge. Number two, you're going to recognize that God is going to bring justice. But it's going to be in His timing. We often want it in our timing. But do we know better than God? Is His timing better or is ours? It'll come in God's timing. In God's timing. So... You know, again, big picture things. This is written, and I, I, want, I, want this, I want you to take this with you. This was written at a real point in time 
in real history, and it was delivered to real people in real churches who faced real trials and hardships and temptations, and it really applied to them. And it really applies to us who face similar hardships and trials and temptations. The whole book does. Not just a few things in the first couple chapters. Okay? This overarching theme I want us to remember as well. The victory of Christ and of his church over the dragon, Satan and his helpers. And it's meant, as Hendrickson says, to show us that things are not what they seem. I want us to remember as we read this book, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That throughout the book, Christ is pictured as the victor and the conqueror. Chapter 1 and verse 18, we're going to walk through several passages of Scripture fairly quickly. Christ is the victor. He is the conqueror. Chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, I am he who lives and who was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Who holds the keys? Jesus holds the keys. Is it Satan? Does Satan hold the keys of hell and death? Does Satan cast people into hell? No. Christ holds the keys. He has conquered death. Chapter 2 and verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Christ is triumphant. Chapter 5 and verse 9. We begin with verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. You are worthy because you have done this. You have done this. You have done this. Chapter 6 and verse 2. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Christ is the conqueror. We sing that hymn, conquering now and still to conquer. Who is that king riding forth? It is Christ who rides forth to conquer. Chapter 11 and verse 15. 11.15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in the heavens, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Chapter 19 and verse 16. 
Are we seeing a trend? Chapter 19 and verse 16. And this is Christ beginning in verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Christ, our King, victorious. Chapter 20 and verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You see, it is saturated with Christ, who is the king, the conqueror, the victor. The victor. Steve Green sings in that glorious song, He has done it. He has triumphed. Just listen to those demons screaming. See him bruise the serpent's head. The prisoners of hell, the Savior's redeeming, all the power of death is dead. And what is being proclaimed throughout this book is that Christ has triumphed and he will ultimately triumph. And even though there are skirmishes and battles in between, Satan is a defeated foe. And God allows him a period of time to test his people and to torment the lost so that the glorious purposes of God and the consummation of history will be revealed. In the book, as well as the theme of Christ and his triumph, there are other major themes. God is the one who is in control of the course of history and protecting his people and punishing rebellion and bringing his purposes to realization in the new heaven and the new earth. There are multiple scenes of worship in the book of Revelation. And it's to lead us to worship. When we see the, the picture of the throne room and there's the scroll written on the inside and the outside and it is sealed and all of creation is examined and there are none found worthy to open the scroll and John is weeping because there are none found worthy. And then the Lamb ascends to the throne and the heavenly creatures, all of heaven resounds with the praise, worthy is the Lamb to receive power and glory. Worthy is the Lamb. It's a scene of worship and as we read those scenes of worship, our hearts should respond in worship. This book was given to teach us how to worship. Spiritual war is outlined. 
the contrast between purity and corruption, beauty and ugliness, truth and deceit. Examples of bearing witness for Christ and being martyred for the faith. Reward and punishment. All of these things are contained as themes in the book of Revelation. Now, very quickly, as we consider the book, there are four predominant views. I'm just going to put them very basically in a nutshell. There are four predominant historical views to how to interpret or approach the book as a whole. And if you're thinking that these views end with Mill, then you're thinking, but you're not on the right track. Okay, so there are views like Amel, pre-mill, post-mill, these. Those deal with the question of the millennium. You hear mill at the end of them? Those deal with the question of the millennium. But I am stepping back even broader and saying that there have been four main views in history, and they continue still in history, to approaching the book of Revelation as a whole. Okay? Four main schools of interpretation. One of those views is called preterism. Preterism. The preterist view approaches Revelation as primarily having been fulfilled in the events before AD 70 when the Roman Empire conquered the Jewish people, or, or I mean, they had already conquered, but they went in to Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they put down the Jewish uprising. And so preterists ask the question as they approach the text, how does this point to the events before AD 70? And what happened there in regard to the Jewish people? Another view, which is very common today, and is in fact in churches in America, for instance, the predominant view is the futurist position. The futurist position. Futurists approach the book by saying that the majority of the book, most of them say after chapter 4 on, is predicting things future to our age. And it's Again, the predominant view of futurists is that the church, God's people, will have been raptured out of the world before tribulation hits, and that the the majority of Revelation, chapters 4 and on, is future to us. So as they approach it, their question is going to be, how does this unfold, and most of the time it's going to be, how does this unfold, and how does it affect the people of Israel, the national people of Israel, and can we see any signs that this time is getting closer? And that's a predominant view. The, the left-behind books and popular preachers and teachers such as David, Jeremiah, and others would hold to a futurist perspective of the book. Another historical way to interpret the book of Revelation is the historicist view. The majority of the reformers held to the historicist position. The historicist view 
says that the book chronologically outlines the history of the church. And so, for instance, in our men's study, we looked at chapter 9, where it mentioned the star that fell from heaven was given the key to the abyss and unlocked the abyss. And these creatures came out of the abyss and they were able to torment men. And the historicist position says that's referring to Arab Muslims. The star is Muhammad, And the Muslims are the ones that are persecuting. And that era was from the 600s to the 700s. And that era has passed. So that's a way that the historicist view would interpret the book. They'll ask the question, when did this happen in human history? And that's a primary focus of the historicist view. And then the fourth view, so we've had the preterist view, the futurist view, the historicist view. The fourth view is called the ideal view or the spiritual view. And that view says that the book of Revelation contains spiritual principles which apply to God's people throughout the ages. And that the purpose of the writing of the book is not primarily to give us a chronological outline of what has happened in church history and what will happen future to us, but it is to encourage the people of God with spiritual principles. Now, as we look at these views, we at least need to recognize these are all historical views, and their various proponents will have lots of argumentation, lots of arguments as to why their view is the best approach. As we look at the book of Revelation, I think that at least all of God's people should be able to say there are spiritual principles here which apply to me today. And God did intend that. I think there's some elements of the book that refer to what happened to the Jewish people. And then I think there's some elements of the book that do refer to the future, future to us. So in some ways... I think that we can see a little bit of all of these in the book. But at the very least, I'm just trying to help us to see that there are other ways to interpret the book than perhaps you have heard of. If you turn on the radio, predominantly you're going to hear the futurist perspective. Predominantly, you're going to hear the futurist perspective very dogmatically presented and they're not going to tell you that there are other perspectives. Predominantly, you're going to hear the futurist perspective presented from, from one angle of the futurist perspective, namely pre-tribulational dispensationalism, such as the Left Behind series and what is promoted there. And you're going to hear it dogmatically presented and you're not going to be told that that's actually the newest system of eschatology in church history. That there are actually those from other camps and approaches. All of these other approaches predate the futurist approach in history. As a matter of fact, the, the futurist position was initially first written about by a Roman Catholic scholar in response to the teaching of the Reformation because the Reformers were saying that the Pope is the Antichrist. And so he rose up 
to find a future scope or somehow interpretation to the scriptures that would say, no, the Pope can't be the Antichrist because the Antichrist isn't here yet. And that's the first time we see the future's perspective in history. His name was Ribera, and he wrote that in the late, I believe it was, 16th century. And it was published by the Roman Catholic Church. And that was the first time, for instance, that anybody proposed a gap between the 69th and 70th week of years in Daniel. It had never been proposed in the writings throughout church history until it was proposed by a Roman Catholic monk who was writing against the reformers who said the Pope is the Antichrist. And he said, no, the Pope can't be the Antichrist because the Antichrist hasn't come yet because we have this gap and the 70th week hasn't come. (laughs) Now, I'm just trying to enlighten us about the history of interpreting the book of Revelation and other books. I'm not saying that because it was written by a Roman Catholic apologist that that makes the view necessarily wrong. That would not logically follow. Nor am I saying that because a certain view is later in history than the others, than the others that it must necessarily be wrong. That would not follow either. But we, it is helpful at least to have an understanding of the background and the history. There have been believers throughout the ages who have held to different approaches to overall how to interpret this book. That's what I want us to see from that. But as, as we consider the book, and as we consider some principles which help us to interpret it properly, I want us to recognize this. One, in the book of Revelation, there are multiple allusions to the Old Testament. And so if we're going to interpret Revelation well, it's helpful for us to have a basic understanding of these allusions in the Old Test- to the Old Testament. For instance, for instance, let's look at this as an example. When the seals are unloosed, and these begin in Revelation chapter 5, 5 and 6, we see the Lamb given the scroll, taking the scroll, and then 6, all these seals are unloosed. The sixth seal, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 6, describes cosmic disturbances. It says in verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. Maybe you recognize that line when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. As well. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain. But notice this it talks about the stars falling to heaven. Now, we ask ourselves the question is there any precedent in the Bible for terminology such as 
the darkness of the celestial bodies being darkened or falling. And we can look back to the Old Testament and we can see described this same type of terminology and we can see what it's referring to. Isaiah chapter 14 is one such example. Isaiah 13, excuse me. Isaiah chapter 13 And we begin with verse 6. And it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. See the terminology there of the celestial bodies and being darkened? What is this referring to in Isaiah chapter 13? Is it referring to the end times? No. Verse 1, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. This already happened in time and space when the nation of Babylon was judged by God. And God described that judgment. So what do we see from this? And it's very common in this type of literature in the scriptures that these celestial events like stars being darkened, moon turning to blood, stars falling from the sky of heaven, these stars and moons and everything refer to great earthly powers or nations and them being conquered and destroyed. And so we already have a precedent in the Old Testament for this type of terminology. And so when we look to Revelation, we don't interpret it literally and say, literally, there's a day coming when the stars are going to fall from the sky. It's figurative language. And I would propose as we consider Revelation, another key thing to remember is it's just filled with figurative language. It's filled with symbolism, filled with figures of speech. As a matter of fact, so much so that unless we have reason to think otherwise, we ought to interpret the images in Revelation as figures and symbols. Think, think about this for just one moment as I give this as an example. You just read in chapter five or chapter 6 where it says, the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Now, if we're going to read the book chronologically and say this happens, and then in chapter 7, that happens next in time, and then chapter 8 happens next in time, we should realize the stars here have already fallen to earth, right? They're not in the sky anymore. But what do we see when we turn over to future passages here, such as chapter 8 and verse 12? It says, then the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars. So a third of them were darkened. Wait a minute, it already said that they had all fallen from the sky. And that was in, back in chapter six. And now we're in chapter eight. And it says a third of them were darkened. You see, this is symbolic. It's not literal. And it's referring 
to powers and nations falling and being destroyed. So we look to the Old Testament and we see much imagery there. And it helps us to understand the pictures in the book of Revelation. There are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And that helps us understand it. So I do want you to take this with you. The book is highly figurative. Highly figurative. When it says that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth, is he really standing there? Physically with a sword jutting out of his... No, it's figurative. These images, so many of them, figures of images of a beast, of a dragon. Figurative, figurative. The book of Revelation is a genre of literature. It's called apocalyptic literature. It was familiar to the Jews. They had writings at their time that were in this same vein. We don't have any writings in contemporary history that are apocalyptic literature, so it makes it more difficult for us to understand. But they knew that this was figurative because they had writings from previous to them Jews, such as First and Second Estrus, which were apocalyptic and very figurative. And so they knew, they approached this book saying these things are figurative, not saying these must be literal. That's how they approached the book. They knew that. It's kind of like, it's kind of like today if you pick up a book of science fiction. You know when you pick up that book of science fiction that some of the things described are futuristic and that we don't really have that technology today because you understand that literature and you understand your contemporary context. It's harder for us because we're removed from this and, and we don't write an apocalyptic genre today. What if, what if a group of people had no concept of poetry, for instance, and they find an ancient poem, but they have no concept of poetry and the figurative language that's in poetry? They might be saying, oh, this is an interesting culture. <laughs> Their eyes... Their eyes are wells of water. You know, you, you read poetic language and your eyes are like deep wells of sparkling waters. You know, wow, those are interesting looking people. You know, they got wells in their heads, you know, and water. You know, if you didn't have any concept, but if you know it's poetry, you approach it saying, hey, it's figurative. I know that's figurative. Revelation is filled with figurative imagery. The mark of the beast. I'm going to do a sermon on that, so I'm not going to go into detail. The mark of the beast, that's figurative language to talk about the non-elect. And the elect are spoken of in Revelation as having the name of God written on their foreheads. That's figurative. Not literally stamped on their foreheads, the name of God. You see, that's all figurative language saying God has put his mark on. He knows who are his. And who are not. Okay? Well, we. We close with this. I don't want you to tune out just because I said we close with this, okay? But just to assure you, okay, it's coming to an end. 
Vern Poitras has said this, Revelation is not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. It's not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. Some people approach it, he says, from the perspective of, I've got to figure out what the bear's feet symbolize. I've got to figure out who the star is that fell from heaven. I've got to figure out all of these little details, and that's how I'm going to understand the book. And he says, no, 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 step back, step back. It's not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. Each one of these segments that you see paints a big picture. And we can approach those segments and we can find the answer to what does this picture represent? What is going on in the big picture here? And even if we don't figure out all of the minor details, we can say with great certainty, here's the big picture and here's what this represents. It's a picture book, not a puzzle book. Think about parables, for instance. Many of the pictures in Revelation are like parables. Some have gone astray throughout the course of human history and they've taken like the parable of the Good Samaritan and they've tried to make every single detail into something symbolic. And so some of the writers of the past who allegorize the text will say, The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul, and the oil represents this, and the donkey is this, and that's not what's intended. God wanted us to see the big picture. There was a guy who wanted to justify himself, and Jesus is saying, you've got to love people, love people, love people. And so he says, well, who's my neighbor? He's wanting to justify himself so that... Jesus will say, oh, well, your neighbors don't include Samaritans or other people like that. You just have to love the good people. And Jesus gives this big picture, and the hero of the story is a reviled Samaritan. (laughs) The parables are to see the big picture. Revelation, God wants us to see the the big picture. It's a picture book, not a puzzle book. And so we should approach it with humility. Because once we reach trying to interpret all of the various details, you look at 50 commentaries and you'll find 50 different interpretations of what each tiny little image represents. But I want to give you encouragement that you can approach this and you can see the big picture and you can say with certainty... That certain things represent. I close with an example. Chapter 9. The fifth trumpet. The fifth angel sounds, and a star fallen from heaven is seen by John. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. 
The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions. There were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. They had his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his name Apollyon. One woe is past, still two more are coming after these things. Now, if we get caught up in all the details, what do the crowns represent? What do the tails represent? Why are their faces like this? We're going to miss the big picture. What's the big picture? What can we say? What can we see from this? It says... To this star was given the key to this pit. Who gave it to him? God did. God is sovereign and in control of this. What do we see in the big picture in this? That there are a group of people who are being tormented and suffering. And who is that group of people? It's not God's people. It's those who did not receive the name of God on their foreheads. And the leader of those that are tormenting is Satan himself. But how is this encouraging to God's people? You are not going to suffer this torment at the hand of Satan and his minions. God is sovereign over this, but you don't have to face it as God's people if you have his name written on your foreheads. Big picture. Hope and encouragement to God's people. And then we can start working out all the details. And like I said, how many different opinions do you want? The star falling from heaven is the Pope. The star falling from heaven is Martin Luther. The star falling from heaven is Mohammed. The star falling from heaven is a righteous angel. The star falling from heaven is an unrighteous angel. The star falling from heaven is Satan. And then we could get bogged down in all of those details and miss the big picture and we've missed the point. So, I hope this is encouraging to you that we can go to these segments, we can find the big picture, we can find principles that apply to us, and God can give us hope and encouragement in the midst of it. Well, in the weeks to come, we'll look at some of those various segments and those big pictures, and we'll pray that the Lord will help us in our understanding. So, in this